Welcome to the Crime Wire podcast on the Inside Lens Network with programming dedicated to bringing attention to unsolved homicides, suspicious deaths, and other topics of interest to our audience. My name is Denny Griffin, and my co-host is Delilah Jones of Imagine Publicity. Good morning, Delilah. Good morning. And, you know, it's really kind of exciting and something I don't think we've done before, but we're going to broadcast with a host of another podcast. So this is going to be an exciting, exciting show. And we are taking callers today, which I I was mentioning off air. We haven't done this in a long time, so we'll see how it goes. So if you're listening and you have a question and you want to call in, the number is 646-478-0982. That's 646-478-0982. And I just want to mention that we have been doing this on the Inside Lens Network for probably, what, maybe 10 years. We have over 700 episodes to listen to on a huge variety of topics. But some of the podcasts on this network highlight criminal cases, some which are still open investigations. And our intent with by doing this is to allow guests to present information for consideration by our listeners. So our podcast and host in no way really represent our guests. We don't claim to solve cases, nor do we want to jeopardize any in, in open investigations. Our guests present their own information, and while we may suggest some resources and assistance, we're not liable for what they do with it. So I, I am just very, very excited to... Um, get you to announce our guest. Well, thank you, Delilah. And without further ado, I will I will do that. Uh, I joined Delilah in being very pleased and excited to welcome Lori Morrison as our guest today. Lori is the host of The Unlovely Truth, a true crime podcast with a twist of faith mixed in. In addition to being a licensed private investigator, she is a paralegal who loves helping victims' families Seek the justice they deserve. Laurie, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. I'm very excited to be here with you both. Well, thank you. And I uh, I want to discuss today with you the, the myriad problems the survivors of victims of murder and suspicious death face when trying to get resolution for themselves and justice for their deceased loved ones. And as uh, Delilah mentioned, we'll be taking listener calls today, and we haven't done that in a while. Uh, hopefully everything will go smooth. If, if anyone has, does have a question or comment, you can call in at 646-478-0982. Now, Laurie, we've talked about this previously when I was uh, on a guest on your podcast and uh, and afterward about something, there are several things that have me fired up about this whole, uh, all these issues with the system. One of them is what I call the by invitation only policy. And if if anyone not familiar with that, what it is, is, uh, and I'll just cite a case I've been working on personally. The case was handled by a county sheriff's office. The mother of the deceased and through my involvement investigation believed that the investigation was not properly handled 
by the uh, by the sheriff's office. And there is substantial evidence, or if you will, investigative leads that we have developed that were never followed up on uh, back in 2007 when the uh, when the death took place, and right through today. So it's been 13 years. Certain uh, potential key witnesses or persons of interest have never been interviewed, and that type of thing. Phone records were never uh, examined to determine activity the night of the murder or the night of the death, it's still an undetermined cause and manner of death. So it's not actually classified as a, as a homicide. Um, and when the mother of the deceased attempted to get the New York state police to intervene or to take the case over, she was told that there, they can't do that because there is a policy that they can only get involved in a case being handled by another agency if they are asked in by the handling agency or the district attorney of that county. So (laughs) the county originally involved has total control of who who can get involved and who doesn't get involved and what information is released. And, I found out that this so-called policy is an unwritten policy, at least in New York. I don't know. I can't speak for every state. But in New York, it's unwritten, and it's uh, apparently was designed to keep and maintain a, a good relationship between various police agencies. And while I understand that, um, the because they don't want to ruffle feathers. They like in this case, the state police would not want to be accused of case jumping or or taking a case that might get positive publicity or a lot of publicity. And unfortunately the, the victim, or in this case, the mother of the victim is deprived of a chance for legitimate investigation to accommodate political correctness. And it's 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 driving me insane. <laughs> uh, Lori, have you yeah. ever encountered this? And what are your thoughts about it? Oh yes, I mean it's not not um, something that only the police do. I've heard you know district attorneys will say, "Well, I can't do anything investigative. Uh, that's up to the police," which I find very interesting because a lot of district attorneys have investigators on their staff. So I'm not sure what they're there for if they're not allowed to investigate. And then sheriff's office or police departments will say the same thing. Well, we can't investigate unless we're ordered to do so by the district attorney. So I think a lot of it is, um, like you said, political correctness. We don't want to ruffle anybody's feathers. Um, Some of it, I think, is just punting responsibility. And it seems like in the shuffle, they forget that this isn't just a procedural exercise. It's it's people's lives. It's a family that just wants to know what happened, and they're being denied the opportunity to have assistance to do just that. And have you um, also found out or uh have you found any of these so-called policies that are actually written down where you could look at a document? Uh, and no. uh, I, like I say, in New York State, no. No, and a lot of times um, they're not really eager to share their written policies and procedures uh, with you. 
because, you know, they don't want them scrutinized. If that would compromise an investigation, I could understand that. But policies and procedures themselves should be public record. I'm sure I'm sure that they're not. I'm sure there are ways that they could deny that if you would try to FOIA them. But um, And by that, I, I just mean an open records request, whether it's federal, state, or local. Um, people should be able to see what their departments are doing. How are they handling themselves? How are they conducting their investigations? Those general topics shouldn't be secret, in my opinion. And, you know, today, you just take a look at what's going on about the aftermath of the election. Uh, everything's about transparency. No matter where you turn, and, and, and prior to the election, there was the, uh, you know, the defund the police stuff and the demands for police mm-hmm. transparency and, and all that. Um, and I, I'm not at all in favor of defunding the police or going that route. But the transparency right. issue is, uh, is really out there right now. Uh, no matter where you look. People are demanding transparency and to find out what their uh, what the authorities, what the leaders, and what their various agencies are up to, be it federal, local, state, or what have you. And uh, it just doesn't seem to be happening. And I do understand when you have an active case, you you do need to keep some things um, kind of secret. You want to not tip your hand to whoever you may be investigating, letting them know that that either they're a target or or what you have found out. But it's particularly frustrating when you're dealing with families whose case happened years, if not decades ago, and there's clearly nothing new going on. There's no activity. There's, there's nothing actively being done to investigate the case, and yet they still uh, won't turn over what they have found out, any files, any information. And I believe there are some pending bills, um, I can't remember what jurisdiction they're in off the top of my head, that after a certain amount of time passes, a cold case file has to be turned over to the family so that they can use their own resources and, and do whatever they can do to perhaps move something forward. And I totally support that. Oh God, I I hope that's uh, I hope that hits New York. I'll tell you, I'll tell you that. And and a lot of others. You know, one of the things, Lori, I, I've uh, done, found out through the Transparency Project, is our original goal was to try to help families. We we felt that families were being denied access to information they were entitled to have. So we were uh, started out wanting to see what could be done to uh, maybe through legislation to uh, to help balance the playing field and give the the survivors of the victims a better shot at getting information, so they could, if they have the resources or can do it themselves, to do their own investigation or have an investigation done on their behalf by a by perhaps a private investigator, um, and. The, the one of the problems is that right now you have every state has its own laws, so mm-hmm. you'd have to have legislation passed. I mean, in order to get this um, balance the playing field, you'd have to get legislation in fifty states. Um, 
and which is obviously a monumental task. And um, we've been exploring the possibility of trying to get something done on a federal level. Um, I, I don't know. That I'm not a legislator. Fabulous. I'm not a lawyer. Well, and certainly neither am I. But you know, a lot of a lot of really great victim victim centric laws start at a grassroots level. So that's one thing that I really encourage people on my podcast. Two different things, you know. Write to your representatives, whether it's local, state, federal, write to them and express your feelings about these issues. And if you can join a group that is working toward similar goals, if you can find one in your area, you know, join that. See what you can do there. And also, people really need to educate themselves before they vote, especially on the local level, your sheriffs, your town councils, your county governments, find out if the people you're voting for have victim-centric values. Make sure that their values mirror yours. And if they don't, find another candidate to support. Amen to that. And uh, yeah, ed- education and knowing what you're doing and uh, exercising your right to vote and, and to have a voice in who's running the show uh, is critical. And, and people can't just sit on the sidelines and hope somebody else does it for them. Uh, people really need right. to get involved. You know, I don't, I don't want to scare people, but you, you have to know the reality that you, you listen to podcasts like yours and like mine and you have empathy for these victims that you're hearing their stories, these people aren't of some different set from the rest of us. They are just like us. And it could be someone we know that is the next case that is not being maybe handled properly. So, you know, you need to be proactive now, not just for the people that are are suffering and need our help now, but because it could be someone in your circle next. And let me say this, would um, you're aware that uh, the Transparency Pro- uh, Project published the Survivors book. I, I know that you've had uh, some of the uh, survivors actually on your podcast yeah. uh, doing interviews. And af- after that book came out, there had been a flood of additional victims or survivors who who we weren't aware of at the time we uh, we did the first book and there's an awful lot of people out there who have been impacted directly by, mm, by yeah. these murders and suspicious deaths and there's a lot more of them than I thought it's it's actually scary to me the, the number that's out there and then you have the uh, the people maybe um, slightly removed such you know you have the immediate family then you have you know close friends and so forth who uh, who lost a dear friend and so on so a lot of people were impacted by the death and um i would like to try to mobilize them i think there's strength in numbers and like to get people not think only about their own case but about the overall problem because I, I think if we can uh, get these people united, or a lot of them, and active in, in writing to their legislators and, and so on and so forth, uh, we might be able to, we'd have a much better shot at getting things done 
if, if they don't concentrate solely on their own case. Obviously, that's important to them. But I think the bigger picture is we can help everybody. To, you know, if we can if we can get people to uh, to cooperate and get on board in the effort. Oh, I, I definitely agree with that because it's it's very easy for the authorities to be able to brush off families one at a time. Um, but it's much harder when there's a lot of attention being focused on how things are being done, which is, I think, a great strength of any true crime podcast that is focusing like yours does on not just the details of the case itself and the actual crime, but the aftermath of it. You know, what has happened a year later, five years later, ten years later, when there's still no resolution? And why is there no resolution? Um, You know, a lot of times these cases that that I've worked with, they're not whodunits, but they take an enormous amount of um, just man hours combing through medical documentation, any kind of forensic testing that might have been done. And a lot of times the police, you know, they get another case that comes in, and so an older one gets pushed to the back because they do have limited resources. And so just getting everybody doing what they can um, to get more attention on it, to get more manpowers on it. Um, I've seen some people that have been advocating police and private um, kind of co-working, especially on cold cases. And I think that's something that every police department needs to look at, you know, work with the private investigators, work with the podcasters and the bloggers and the YouTubers, work with people that can give you time and effort that your department may not have. And Laurie, what's been your experience as a private investigator uh, investigating these cold cases? Uh, your, your, uh, how are you received by the police? Do you tend to get cooperation? Is there a resentment? Is there some of each? Um, there's some of each for sure, um, because you know cold cases become cold for lots of different reasons like i said that particular department may be understaffed they may be undertrained it may be an an example where they just they don't have this type of crime happen and so they're just not experienced enough to recognize certain hallmark things that that might give give other investigators an idea that something needs to be looked into um, and a lot of it is what there's a confirmation bias where you want to see new evidence in light of what you already believe. And so I've seen so many cases where a person who should be a person of interest, they should be someone that, that's looked at very critically, they're allowed to set the narrative because they're the one that maybe calls in the 911 call and says, oh, we've had a horrible accident, or, oh, this person committed suicide. And because that's the first thing anybody hears, they're not looking at it critically. They're evaluating every piece of evidence 
through the lens of what they've been told the situation is. And so you get that 911 caller who passes it to dispatch, who passes it to the police, who passes it to um, hospital maybe if that person has not yet died, who then passes it on to a medical examiner if an autopsy is done. And by the time it gets to the medical examiner, they're saying things like, well, I've been told this. I mean, I've read this in reports. This person has a, a history of um, depression. And then when you talk to the people who know this person, grew up with this person, family members, they say, no, they didn't. And so you wonder, where did that even come from? But the medical examiner takes it as fact. Or I've seen it written, the police have no suspicion of foul play. Well, they may not, but what do you think, medical examiner? You're supposed to be looking at that through fresh eyes, not filtering it through other people's opinions. So, you know, I, I, I wish I could say I get more cooperation than I do, but once people have made up their minds, they don't like to be proven wrong necessarily. So they want to stick with um, with what's been decided. You know, there's there's more interest in the case being closed than in being right. Well, you made a, a very good point that, that I believe also is that sometimes the problems can start right at the uh, with the receipt with the receipt of the complaint or the the phone call, the nine one one call. If that is not handled properly, uh, like you say, it, the the by the time it gets to the uh, patrol officer, whoever the first uh, responding officer is going to be, uh, they come they come to the scene with this uh, notion already in their head that it's a suicide or an accident or what have you, and um, and, and that. I think can obviously be detrimental. Uh, they may not look. I, I always uh, was under the belief that every death case should be treated as a homicide until the evidence proves otherwise. Oh, exactly. So, that is that's death investigation 101. Because if you don't do that, you're not going to collect evidence. You're not going to collect statements. You're not going to take the correct photographs or maybe enough photographs if you took any at all. And you can't go back and recreate that scene. You get one shot to do it right. And it has to be right then. Yeah. It, it, uh, so if you start out and that now the other issue, uh, I, I think, is the way things are set up. And, and you mentioned uh, at the start of the show that there are a lot of good reasons for police withholding certain information. They don't want to tip off a suspect and, and that type of thing. Right. And that's all valid. Um, problem is in, in some relatively, uh, hopefully, s small number of cases, uh, if an investigation has been mishandled somehow, either through incompetence or laziness or lack of training or whatever it is um this this being the police agencies being exempt from FOIA requests or uh, various open records requests if the case is open um provides an opportunity to conceal these problems it, it, again the transparency um if, if nobody 
can find out what actually happened, how the investigation was conducted, who was interviewed, what evidence was collected, all that type of stuff. If no one has access to it except through the handling agency, and whether if there's been a problem with the investigation, whether they are trying to cover that up for a particular officer or maybe it's an old case where they just don't and the the original detective is no longer there but they want to protect the image of the department uh their reasons if they don't want the information public they have total control over who gets to see it and i always say it's kind of like the fox guarding the chicken coop it just <laughs> exactly. doesn't seem right well and if anybody wants to make open records requests, I really encourage you get online, learn what the rules are in your jurisdiction, how you have to to go about this and who the custodian of records is to who you have to make your request. Learn those things and be persistent because I have seen records requests come back and the agency has said, well, you need to do it this, this, and this way, and it's not true at all. And whether they're saying that, hoping they will scare the person off, or whether they just really don't know, but they were making up, um, or I shouldn't say making up, they were conveying information about how the request had to be made that was not lawful. They were putting extra requirements on the requester. So make sure you know what exactly needs to be done, and if you're told it's something different, quote to them, this is where I see how to do this, and I've done it correctly. If they still say no, most jurisdictions you're allowed to ask why, and they have to tell you why they're turning it down. They also have timelines that they have to get back to you in, so make sure that they are sticking to those. Um, But you're right. In the end, if they just say, this is the reason I'm turning you down, the only other thing you could do is file a lawsuit, and people just don't have the resources to do that. Um, you know, journalists a lot of times will sue, but they've got the backing of their company. They've got incredible resources to do that. Your average person just doesn't. And another excellent point, and, you know, speaking of journalists, what, what I found, and I'd be interested in your experience, is that dealing with a local paper or TV station that relies on the uh, contact at the police agency, the sheriff or the police department, whatever it is, for their information, they're going to be, uh, I think, reluctant to actively or aggressively challenge the department on how they have handled a particular case. They they don't want to jeopardize their sources. And I think to to do it right, if you really need to find a good investigative reporter, not just a reporter, but an investigative reporter that is yes. willing to take the bull by the horns and, and call people out or agencies out and ask for ask for some of these questions to be answered and they're they're getting uh, fairly tough to find. <laughs> True. You're you're definitely right about the the local news outlets. You know, they have to work with these people day in and day out. And so 
they do want to maintain good working relationships. So a lot of times it's better to go to um, a, a bigger media group, you know, maybe a larger town that's that's close to where you are, a bigger city, a state capital, something like that. And that's why I love podcasts like yours so much because people can take your podcast, they can share it to everybody that they're connected with on social media, encourage people to listen, and then you can again get this grassroots movement going. And when these local agencies are hearing from people that don't have a dog in the hunt, like we say down south, then they say, okay, this is getting a lot of attention. This is something that we want to not be criticized about. So we maybe need to um, to make another effort on this case. It's it's going to take that kind of public pressure in a lot of cases to get something moving. Absolutely, public awareness. That's got to that's mm-hmm. got to be the key, in my opinion, to to getting things done. Um, I just uh, one of the uh, things that I recommend to some people, some of the survivors, for example, they they end up with the at odds with the investigating officers, the detectives handling the case for whatever reason, some legitimate, some not. But they end up not being able to communicate. The you know the the, the detective won't take the phone call or won't return a phone call. And and things just deteriorate, and information doesn't get uh, get shared uh, mm-hmm. either way. And what I encourage people to do there are some several good nonprofit victim advocacy groups out there. And I, uh, when you reach a point where you no longer can communicate with the police agency, um, I, I encourage trying to get maybe one of these victim advocacy groups to uh, intervene on your behalf and, and advocate for you and, and yeah. try to get the line of communications reopened. And it just so happens I'm monitoring the switchboard here. I, I think we may have a caller from Citizens Against Homicide. Uh, and oh, maybe if, uh, if you want to, we could we could bring uh, we could bring that call on board and and uh, and see what we can learn from uh, from the advocacy perspective. Yes. Is this area two oh nine that we're looking for? Hello. Oh, you've been holding quite some time. Maybe I'll go to the next one. Area code two oh nine. Yes, I'm here. Okay, hi, Jean. Hi, how are you? Great, go ahead with your question or comment. Well, yeah, my comment is uh, you know, listening to Lori uh, talk about working with the uh, police uh, and sheriff's uh, departments for um, a mutual goal of solving a crime. Um, Jenny's comment just now about uh, uh, the excuses. Or, or, I, it's, it was hard to pick up, but somebody's uh, mentioned that the excuses they give to um, uh, just hope that you'll go away. It, you know, a, a lot of the uh, co- comments that I hear from, or excuses that I hear from agencies is that um, 
uh, we're not getting um, um, the information that we need. Uh, basically, what they want is a slam dunk case, and we're not getting the the information we need. So we're um, we're investigating. Well, they know they're not investigating thoroughly enough, following up on leads, and uh, that they should be following up on. And what I tell them generally is, you know, what leads are you not following up on? And when they hum and haw, then I know they're not following up on any leads. Now, I'm a retired peace officer in California, so I know when I'm being put um, put off and I know when I'm being uh, ignored. And when I confront them with that and inform them that I'm a retired peace officer, their whole attitude changes. So... It's imperative that people listen to what Denny just said. Call uh, an advocacy organization in your area or uh, or call Citizens Against Homicide. We'll be glad to uh, take your case, uh, ask questions, and on your behalf of the law enforcement uh, detectives. Um, And... um, And you, you know, get somebody to work on your behalf, and uh, like Citizens Against Homicide and any other organization. But you can't sometimes do it alone. It it it, it takes um, uh, a lot of pressure, like has been mentioned. Uh, sheriffs. Chief of police, they don't like negative attention. And um, you get the publicity out there, talk shows, call in talk radio, uh, blog talk radio shows, anything you could do to bring attention to the lack of investigation. And that, that I hope that makes sense. Uh, get the um, advocacy organizations to to help. I think it's great what your organization does because people often don't know where to turn. So that's great that, that now everybody knows that they can give your group a call. Absolutely. Yeah, and I, I, I think it's, uh, like I said earlier, uh, crucial to have a flow of information and if, if it if if it's not working out between the survivor and the police agency, then a, a, a third party can make the difference. And um, sometimes I've heard that now various jurisdictions have either the district attorney has an advocate, or maybe the police agency has an advocate. But I've heard some stories um, negative feedback on those because. People say, well, they're they're getting their paycheck from the county or the city, and yeah. and you know whose side are they really on? Are they uh, are they going to challenge or really advocate for me? Um, have you heard any uh, feedback of, of, along those lines, Lori? Not really, because most of the people that that I have dealt with. Um, 
it's either been a very, very new case or a very, very cold case. And so the lines are still drawn pretty sharply. If it's a new case, the the authorities are still pretty protective of it, and so they're not wanting um, to really listen to, to anybody at that point. And with the cold ones, they're just, you know, we did everything that we could. And, and our caller made a, a great point when he talked about, you know, they'll say things like, well, we haven't been given information, we're not getting any new leads. Well, you're the investigator. You're supposed to be developing leads. Go back out and talk to neighbors, known associates. There's going to be holes in even a well-done case. And if you can find them, you can say, this person never got talked to, this report never got scrutinized. There's something you can be doing. So just find it and go do it. Yeah, it, it seems like the, quote, investigators, uh, end quote, don't always investigate. <laughs> um, like you say, some of the some of the stuff is investigation 101. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I, I was uh, always taught that if you are investigating, say, a missing persons case, one of, one of the first things you would do is want to talk to the people who were last in contact with a missing person and find exactly. out what, what was yeah what was going on were they having issues you know that type of thing um or or a death case you want to talk to the people last known to have been in communication uh, either telecommunication or physical um with with the uh, with the deceased and to not interview these people is you know i i don't know I, I'm trying to figure the logic behind that. If you're the investigator handling the investigation, why would you not want to at some point, especially early on, is talk to these uh, witnesses who may have information? I just don't understand mm-hmm. it. Do you have an explanation, Lori? I think a lot of times it's, again, that that confirmation bias. I was told this was an accident. So, you know, why would it matter what anybody saw or didn't see, or I I was told this was a suicide. I think that's part of it. I think part of it is um, the faster we can close it, the better. And so why bother with all these things that might stir up a hornet's nest and keep me from closing it? Um, I'm a big fan of put everything down on a timeline. Put everything down in a spreadsheet about what the different witnesses said. And when when you look at it that way, instead of just taking everybody's account individually, but when you look at it that way, you start going, now, wait a minute, these people can't both be right. Or these things couldn't have happened at the same time. You start realizing that, that the story doesn't fit together as neatly as you thought that it did. And then you've got all kinds of angles for additional investigation. But that takes time. That takes attention to detail, and it always amazes me when that's not done. We, I, I have a case yeah. I'm working right now, and there's a, a civil case pending, and so we did some subpoenas for some records. And I'm looking at the records, and it's not stunning me what's there. What I'm stunned by is what's not there. 
and I'm thinking, did you miss things that you meant to send with this, or were these things just really never done? It's it's really amazing to me, and I'm, I'm glad to hear I'm not the only one who's encountered this. <laughs> is this <laughs> this the stuff that just leaves you scratching your head, you know. Um, natural curiosity, it would seem, even if you weren't a police officer or a detective or a law enforcement agent, um, it just seems natural curiosity you'd want to do certain things, you know, just uh, it, and, right. and for a, a, a supposedly trained investigator, uh, to ignore or not do is uh, is just mind-boggling, and I guess too that gets into the training aspect. Our is yes. I, I think some people get you know as, as tough uh, as certain areas are, and I, you know it goes by location. But the screening process for a police officer candidates, uh, I think some people are able to slip through the cracks that they, you know, they're good test takers or what have you, and, and they're able to, to, to get in. Um, and, and and maybe they really shouldn't uh, be in that line of work. Then you have others who maybe have been in job, maybe they've been on the job for a while and their attitudes change. Maybe they get, uh, you know, lazy. Uh, maybe they just don't care anymore. You know, maybe that's... Uh, you know, it's a stressful job, can be very stressful. Maybe it's gotten to them. But along the line, uh, they, they may change where they started out as very good cops. Maybe things have kind of deteriorated over time. And when you have this, I, I, again, I think it's a, a small percentage of the overall police, and I'm very pro-police. Yeah. But uh, when when you get these people who don't, for whatever reason, just because they can't, they don't have the ability or the desire or the drive or whatever, uh, there's got to be a way to deal with them because, they, it, um, you know, whether it's through additional training, whether it's whatever, <laughs> reconditioning or attitude adjustment, yeah. but somehow to get these people on track or back on track where they're actually doing the job they were hired to do. And... Uh, and and that seems to be you know, I I know some areas are doing that others don't seem to be so I, it's it's not uh, it's not uniform uh, as to how these problems are being addressed if they're being addressed at all. Well, and that's an excellent point. I think people would be shocked to realize how different um, the training the. Um, continuing education once you've been on the job, the actual screening to get the job in the first place, how different that is from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. So, you know, if you were to be a murder victim, whether or not your case gets solved in large part depends on where you got killed. Did you get killed somewhere where there is good training, where there are good protocols and accountability to follow those protocols um, and if not, then your case may just kind of languish. Yeah, and uh, along that <clears throat> same line, it, it depends on 
could depend on where the call is, the 911 call is routed to. For example, in my case in New York, had the 911 center sent that uh, call about the dead body to the state police rather than the county, we might, you know, that whole issue may have been avoided. Uh, if a different right. agency with jurisdiction, obviously, but if a different yeah. agency with jurisdiction had taken the case from the get-go, uh, my uh, my friend who I'm working with on the, her son's death here is uh, wouldn't be in the situation she's in today. So that's uh, it's the luck of the <laughs> luck of the draw, if you will. I guess you know, like you say, where you were killed and 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 who got the uh, where the call was assigned to. Well, and you mentioned the standards for hiring are so important. I just read the other day in the Louisville Courier-Journal about a former Louisville police officer who had been convicted, not just charged, but convicted of sexual misconduct with a minor. And he has recently been hired by a sheriff's department who knew about that conviction. How? <laughs> Talk exactly. about a head scratcher. <laughs> the the sheriff that hired him was quoted as saying something along the lines of we knew about that but we did additional background investigation and we talked with other law enforcement officials and we decided that the, the totality of the information led us to believe it would be okay to hire this man who had sexually abused a minor he didn't say that last part. I added that. My goodness. Uh, inexplicable. Uh, it's shocking, isn't it? Oh, it, it's just stunning to me. Uh, and and the, the survivors and the citizens are being deprived um, of a fair chance at, at justice because of all these bizarre decisions that are being made. And you know, people being hired that shouldn't have been. <laughs> it, it's uh, you know, you'd almost think, but what's the old saying? You can't make this stuff up. I mean, it actually happens, <laughs> and it's really, um, it's really incredible. What I'd like to do, Laurie, if you if you're willing, is talk a little bit about uh, some of your not not specifically, uh, but in generalities. Um, First, first of all, how would someone get a hold of you if, if they had a case they want you to look at? What would be the best contact? I do a lot of my work with um, Sheila Wysocki with Without Warning. So she has um, a great presence online. You can look her up. We do a, a lot of cases together. You can email me at Lori, L-O-R-I, at theunlovelytruth.com to reach me directly. So either of those two avenues would would be great. Okay, okay. and after you are contacted by whatever method, um, how would you generally proceed with the case? Is is there kind of a general things you do, like a checklist or, or that type of thing, or how do you proceed? Yeah, I'm a big fan of checklists. I like to make sure that everything gets covered as it should. So um, one of the first things we have to do is just get the facts of the case, generally. Not not every detail, but generally what has happened up, up till that point. 
And then, of course, there are issues of jurisdiction. Um, you know, you have to be licensed in certain states to, to do work there. So making sure that uh, if we're not licensed in that particular jurisdiction that we partner up with someone who is, um, if it's a case that we, we feel like we can add some value to, and um, really just try to help people the best we can. If, if we have someone that we feel is local that we know well and trust that would do a better job, we can certainly also refer people. Um, you know, every case is unique. Every, every family's needs are unique. Um, some families really, they realize that maybe because of a, a lack in the initial investigation, not enough um, evidence was gathered that it may be hard to, to ever get a judicial resolution. They maybe just want their, their victim, their family member, their loved one, they want their story told. They want to reclaim that narrative. And so that's where it helps that, you know, we, we have podcasts. We know other podcasters that, that cover these sorts of things. So, you know, finding out what the goal is, you know, what is it that these families need to accomplish, and then we just try to work out a plan with them um, to, to go in whatever direction will we'll best accomplish their goals. Now, as far as your uh, when when you do open a case, you take on a case. Uh, how do you uh, keep your files? In other words, do you, do you document everything? Do you have like case notes? Well, let's say you make a phone call to uh, a DA or something. Uh, do you make some kind of a note in the file to you know about your activities or who you're in touch with. You know, if you don't write an actual report, say, on something, but just like a case activity sheet, do you keep stuff like that or do you, how do you? Yes, yes. We, we do have some software that we use that um, that sorts that out really, really well. And depending on what information we're taking in and if there's potential civil litigation, you have to stop and think about issues of discoverability and, you know, what, what do I want to commit to writing. But if there is civil litigation, we want to work closely with the attorney. So then we have, um, you know, attorney work product and we, we have some some issues uh, with privilege that we can, can keep some of that under under wraps until a trial would start. So, you know, again, every single case is unique, so we just have to see um, what is going to work best to accomplish that client's goals. It's uh, how long have you been doing this, Laurie? Have you been obviously you've been on it for a while? Uh, how many years have you been involved in this cold case stuff? Well, I was a, a paralegal before I actually got my PI license, so I did a little bit of um, work in the criminal area, oh gosh, over a decade ago, um, have done some corporate work, and then started working um, actually as a volunteer, trying to just help wherever I could um, four or five years ago, and then have been licensed for about the last three years. Uh, Delilah, you've been uh, listening to all this. Have you got any thoughts or comments? Of course I do. <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah. 
I would just circle back to something that both you and Lori hit upon is the fact that instead of instead of focusing on one particular case, it's going to take numbers. It's going to take numbers to to bring about change, whether it's legislatively or whether it's policy. Um, and I think that's something that you have set up with the Transparency Project and the people involved in it, the experts involved in it, and, you know, those who are willing to volunteer their time to fill the gap where where any survivor may find themselves that there are power is power in numbers and it is going to take a grassroots efforts to get the changes made that uh, are going to benefit everyone. Well said. And along that line, um, I guess this might be an appropriate time for me to mention that we have a transparency project, a, a few irons in the fire. Uh, one thing we're exploring is federal legislation. Um, for example, uh, maybe enforcement through funding or, or, or lack of funding or pulling funding and that type of thing, uh, pocketbook issues to uh, to set some certain standards and, and get the uh, various police agencies, law enforcement agencies to comply. The other thing we're doing is we are actively seeking to do a documentary series. Uh, working title is Survivors. And it would be where these uh, survivors of the victims are actually interviewed on camera uh, with the focus, obviously you have to talk about the death uh, that, that, that's involved, but we don't want to focus on the blood and gore issue. Uh, right. We want to focus on the aftermath of the death and what the survivors go through. Uh, what a lot of people don't realize is, that, you know, uh, maybe the maybe the person uh, who is killed is the chief breadwinner and the wife suddenly has no income or, I mean, it's, it's more than just the physical loss. There, there's uh, the financial impact as well, the emotional impact. And then when a case is not solved, when there's no arrest made and it's open, the, the stress of, uh, of that and, and, and then getting into all these issues about the lack of transparency uh, and, and bringing well, and public I attention I've seen so many families get trolled online. You know, you see a lot of like Facebook pages and whatnot, justice for so-and-so, and they're just trying to put information out there to see if anybody will come forward. And they get some of the most hateful, awful comments attacking them. And so, you know, they're traumatized all over again. Yeah, and you know, like the that New York case, I've got the, the mother of the deceased ended up uh, about seven or eight years after the death. She had a heart issue, and her doctor said that she had broken heart syndrome, that the stress from dealing with, with trying to find out what happened to her son for all these years took its toll physically. 
So it's uh, physical, emotional, and then, uh, like you say, the uh, you know, there's always the scammers and spammers out there looking to victimize, and uh, some people can be very brutal in their uh, in their comments, and it, it's just uh, <laughs> it, it's really something. So our as we're trying to get something set up along the lines of this uh, documentary series, we don't want the, we don't want the survivors victimized for a third time. They were initially victimized right. by the loss and by the system, and we don't want them to be victimized by uh, any uh, organization that's strictly after ratings and concentrates right. on the blood and gore and concentrates on accuracy. For ratings, I think we that's want the focus. Yeah, it's, so we won't do business with anyone who's not interested in the in the uh, the benefit to the survivors and not using them as vehicles for ratings or you know. St- I understand everybody wants a popular show, obviously, but uh, it, I think I think the subject matter is such that it could be very popular and interesting without going the blood and gore route and concentrating solely on that type of thing. Agreed. Um, so, Laurie, what I'd like to do in our final few seconds here is, uh, uh, since you have a lot of clients and so on, if we get this off the ground, maybe we could uh, explore some, maybe you have some people who would like to tell their stories as well. You know, I don't know, but I'm just throwing it out there. We would certainly keep in touch oh. on that if you thought there might be any interest. Oh, I do. I think I think every every family wants to tell the story of their loved one because so many of them are kind of throwaway victims. You know, oh, well, they were in the wrong place at the wrong time, so they they kind of invited what happened to them. And that's nonsense. No one deserves to be the victim of a a violent crime, no matter what circumstance has led them wherever they are. Exactly. And on that note, I got to say the clock is uh, telling us our time is up. And I, I want to thank you so much, Lori. It's really been a pleasure uh, to have you on and uh, certainly very informative and I'm encouraged, uh, and, and hopefully we can work together on some of this stuff as we as we go. Oh, I would love that, and thank you for having me. It's been great. Okay, and thanks to our audience for listening. Until next time, stay healthy and stay safe. Mm-hmm.